What's going on, guys? Are we good? We're feeling pretty mediocre right now, if I'm being honest. Do you like the song that I wrote, that last worship song? I wrote that. Me and a Daisy, we did that together. It was I'm just a Holy Spirit thing, so you're welcome. You're welcome for that. Guys, I'm feeling pretty good tonight. Like, can I be real with you? I'm normally, you know, I have, like, my pitch. Like, look to your neighbor, go hug, high-five handshake. Tell him, you know, it's good to see him. I don't know why. I never write it down. It just comes out of my mouth. I do it every single time. But tonight, I'm feeling a little, like, different, and this is why. All week, I've been, like, stressing out about this message, and not stressed because I'm nervous to speak in front of people. Stressed because I'm like, God, what do you want to say? And I felt like the message was, I was like, this is too basic. This is too, like, whatever. But I was actually... Um, in the back, just getting some water, and I felt like God was like, hey, this is exactly what I want to say tonight, and it's weird when you speak a message on behalf of God, you know, like, you're like, hey, God told me to say this to you guys, um, and so it's like a weird burden, but I just felt like it was lifted, and I felt like we're going to let this thing rip, and so um, now look at your neighbor, give him a hug, a high five, a handshake, this is not a funeral, you can, like, be happy. Hey, my name is Connor. I'm one of the pastors here at YA. I know Andrew did this. There's, like, a mosquito on my arm. Um, he did this a second ago. If it's your first time here, pop up your hand again one more time. I won't call you out, JJ. I promise. Hey, we just want to say welcome. Um, you will find, I don't know if you've come here with like church history, church baggage, maybe you've never been to church. Um, you will find out very quickly that I am a Jesus guy, that we are a Jesus church. I'm going to talk about Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the most incredible person to ever walk the face of the earth. He's the most powerful, most loving, most gracious, most kind person. And I'll even take it a step further and say, I believe that Jesus wasn't just a person, that he was God himself. I know that's a bold statement, that's a big statement, and I'm pretty aware that some of you in this room tonight might not agree with that, and that's okay. Because the cool thing about God and His church is that you don't necessarily have to believe right away to belong, but that God loves you just as you are. And I believe that the more you clearly see Jesus for who He is, He becomes more and more irresistible. And so my only goal tonight is to elevate Jesus, to talk about Jesus, and to talk about his love in God, and uh, I'll just let God do the rest. And if he's working on your heart, um, don't, don't be like too tough or too strong, like let him do it, and uh, we'll see where this thing goes. Um, if you haven't been here in a while, or again, if this is your first time, we are just coming off of a series entitled The Holy Spirit. Sorry, I know I'm going to kick this eventually, so I'm just moving now. Um, we're coming off a series called the Holy Spirit. And we spent the past three to four weeks talking about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that it's actually better for him to leave so that we can have the Holy Spirit. And throughout the series, we talked about how the Holy Spirit's primary job is to lead us and to guide us to be more like Jesus. And so while this summer, we're kind of having this generic theme of just summer at YA, where we're going to be doing some fun, cool things on Thursdays, grilling out, like Andrew said, just doing some different things. But maybe we thought that if we just did a series on the Holy Spirit and that his role is to lead us and guide us to look more like Jesus, it only makes sense then to spend the next couple weeks talking about who Jesus is. If we're supposed to look like Jesus, be led to be more like Jesus, act like Jesus, then it only makes sense that we take the next couple weeks or months or who knows, maybe a few years, maybe the rest of our life we can talk about Jesus. 
just talk about who Jesus was, what he was like. And so official title, Summer at YA, subtitle, Jesus is blank. And our goal over the next couple weeks is to fill in that blank so that you can get a clearer picture of the God who loved you so much he actually came to earth and died for your sins. All right? We good? All right, four of us. I'll preach to you four. Here we go. John chapter 3. If you have your Bible, go to John chapter 3. We are about to read one of probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible. Who knows what it is? John 3, 17. You're close. No. John 3, 16. But I want to take a moment because we're actually starting John chapter 3, verse 1. We're reading 1 through 16, so buckle up. Like, we got, we got quite a bit we're getting through. But I want to give you a little bit of context before we jump in. So John chapter 2, they are having a feast in Jerusalem, a celebration. It's called Passover. Now, I'm not Jewish, but I would equate this to sort of like their Christmas. This is like one of the biggest holidays on the Jewish calendar. And every single Jewish male was required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday. It was the celebration of when the angel of death, dark and scary, Exodus, passed over the people of Israel and their children remained safe during a plague in Egypt. And so this, this feast is going on. Thousands upon thousands of people are in Jerusalem hanging out and Jesus is there and he's making his presence known. He's flipping over tables in the temple and whipping people. And that's where like every Calvinist guy is like righteous anger. Like, and it's like, no, don't like whip people. But Jesus is making his presence known. And then in John chapter two, at the end of it, it says this. It says that he went around Jerusalem during the Passover, performing many signs and wonders, so much so that he actually started to gain a following. Apparently, Jesus wasn't weird or strange to people, but he was attractive. People wanted to be around Jesus and hear what he had to say. He was different. And so that is where we pick up in this story. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here we go. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man by the name of Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for nobody could perform the signs that you are doing if God wasn't with them. Jesus replied, you're right. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus, rightfully so, said, I don't understand what you're talking about. How can somebody be born when they are old? And Nicodemus asked, surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, again, you're right. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at me saying you must be born again. And he's like, okay, whatever. And he's like, let me put it this way. The wind, it blows wherever it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you can't really tell where it's coming from. You might see its effects, but you don't know where it's going. So it is with everybody that's born of the spirit. And Nicodemus is like, not any more clear. Okay, how can this be, he asked. And Jesus said, you are Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe me. How then will you believe me if I speak of heavenly things? No one's ever gone to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man, a.k.a. Jesus. And he says, just as Moses was lifted up, 
He lifted up the snake in the wilderness. So the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And here we go, John 3, 16 and 17, in all of its glory. He says, for God so loved the world. That's awesome. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, to condemn anybody, but to save the world through him. And so tonight, as we kick off our summer series about who Jesus is, the title of my message, if you're taking notes, and if you haven't been here before, I'll clue you in, notes get you a better house in heaven. Just got to throw it in for all the new people. If you're taking notes, the title of my message is this, Jesus is so loving. Jesus is so loving. Can we pray? And then we'll jump in. Father God, we love you so much. Lord, we just pray, like I was saying earlier, that Jesus could be magnified. There's no message on the planet that can change somebody's soul. Um, there's no words I could say, joke I could give. I, there's nothing I can do. But when I speak your word to the greatest integrity that I have of speaking truth about who Jesus is, your Holy Spirit can change lives, can change hearts. God, Jesus is the most incredible person ever. He deserves all of our focus, all of our time, all of our attention. He is God himself in the flesh, come for us, not to condemn us, but to love us and to save us. So God, we just wanna magnify him tonight. Father, let's just lift Jesus up and we believe that you're gonna do incredible things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I got a question for you guys. Now, we've been kind of mediocre in our response, so I'm going to need you to step it up a little bit. Question. Thank you. I don't know who that was, but thank you. I needed that. Have you ever loved something so much to the point where it's irrational? Have you ever loved something or someone so much? Andrew's like, I love myself that much. It's like, <laughs> kidding. He doesn't have a mic. He can't defend himself. Um, have you ever loved something so much it's irrational? My wife and I are animal people. I actually, correction, we are dog people. Just dogs. Maybe horses, but we're not rich, so whatever. Um, but my wife, she doesn't just like dogs. She loves dogs. My wife, Erin, lo like, loves dogs. I remember one time we were dating. We were at Highland Tappan Burger, and there was a golden retriever laying down on the side outside. My wife laid down on the sidewalk <laughs> and, like, cuddled this stranger's dog. This is, like, date four or five. And so either I'm weird or she's weird. I'm weird for, like, staying with her, or, like, she's weird for laying on the sidewalk and hugging a dog. But my wife loves dogs. And for the first two years in our marriage, to save money and to live, um, we lived in somebody's basement. This couple had turned their basement into like a little apartment. 
And so we lived in somebody's basement, and it was amazing. We paid like half price of what rent and utilities would be at like a normal apartment complex. It was really the only way we were ever able to like save and like get a house and have any type of life. And so for the first two years of our marriage, we had this awesome setup living in this person's basement that they had set up to be kind of like an apartment. The only catch was we weren't allowed to have a dog. And now, honestly, like, was it a little upsetting? Kind of. But it made sense because we had to, like, walk through their front door and kind of go through their living room to get to the stairs and go to the basement. So it had just been weird to have a dog. But all my wife wanted when we were engaged and getting married, she had, like, a Pinterest board of just dogs. Like, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Like, you think I'm kidding? I'm not kidding. Like, she had, she just loved dogs. Couldn't wait to have a dog. And so sort of like dog therapy for us is we had friends that every summer would leave um, their house and go on vacation. And sometimes it was for like two weeks. But this particular summer, they left for two months. They, they went on like a family vacation. Then they had a family reunion. And then something else was going on. And so they were gone for two months out of the summer. And Aaron and I had the opportunity to stay at their house and watch their little one, one and a half year old golden doodle named Theo. And so for two months, my wife was on cloud nine. And listen, Theo is awesome. He's smart. He's intelligent. He's fun. He's like playful. He's cuddly. He doesn't shed. Like he everything that you want in a dog. And so Aaron for two months is in heaven. Like every day waking up, playing with Theo at night. Like Theo's like watching TV with us. She's just in heaven. She loves it. She's having a dog. But then, you know, eventually they get home, and we have to go back to our dogless basement apartment. And I remember it was either like the first or second night we were home. Um, I'm laying in bed, and I'm kind of dozing off. It's like 10 or 10.30. I have this video on my phone, but I wasn't allowed to play it. Um, (laughs) I hear this, like, deep, heart-wrenching, like, sob. I'm like... Like, imagine one of your most, like, like, loved people in your life dies dramatically in front of you. Like, that kind of, like, sob. Like, it is, like, this soul-wrenching, like, <laughs> And so I kind of, like, wake up, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, hey, are you okay? Like, did, did you get bit by something? Or, like, what, what is happening? And literally, she, like, barely can muster it. She's like, I, I miss so the first thing I do is pull out my phone and start recording. And I'm like, babe, I'm so sorry. Tell me about this. And literally, she's like, I swear in my life. Like, she stops crying for a second. She's like, if anybody hears this video or whatever, I know you're recording, I will kill you. And then she, like, goes back to, like, <laughs> to crying. But I'm like, what is, like, what is wrong? Like, I love dogs, too, but I would never cry over, like, and she's seriously, like, tears, like, pouring out of her eyes, like, barely can utter words, and she's like, I just feel like they, they took him from me, and I was like, what, the owners? Like, the owners took their dog back? Like, that's kind of how it was going to go, and literally, I'm not, I'm not kidding you. She's like, it feels like somebody took my heart and just ripped it out, and I don't know what to do. And I remember laying in bed. I was like, never in my life have I ever seen somebody with such intense, 
an almost irrational love for something. Like, I've never experienced in my life that type of intense, irrational love for a dog. Like, my wife, yes, my grandparents are parents, absolutely, but like a, th- like a dog? She had the most intense, irrational love I had ever seen in my entire life, just sobbing in our bed about her missed dog that we were babysitting, or whatever, dog-sitting. And as we kick off this series, watch how I tie this in, in John chapter 3, we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus. And he has this view of God. He has this way that he thinks about God and talks about God. In this encounter with Jesus, his view of God is about to get totally flipped on its head because of the powerful, intense, irrational love of God in Jesus Christ. See what I did there? Brought it in. So Nicodemus. We're introduced to this guy named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He's actually one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He makes two other appearances in the book of John. So here's my challenge. Go read the book of John and find him. Don't Google it. Read the book of John and find the two other times that Nicodemus appears. But he's one of my favorite characters in the entire Bible. And he's introduced to us in the story of John as a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, and somebody that came to meet Jesus at night. And at first glance, when we read that, we're like, okay, whatever. John, the author, he's just trying to give us like the setting of this conversation that's about to take place. But if we were in ancient Israel, or if we were Christians, kind of right at the founding of the church, Jesus had just gone up into heaven, and we were trying to make this Jesus thing happen, if we had that ancient Jewish perspective, we would have have recognized some things in John's description of Nicodemus. The first thing that he says is that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. So a Pharisee in that day is a religious leader, almost like a pastor. They were like a religious leader of the day that were very familiar with the law of God, with the Old Testament, with with the first five books of the Bible and the Ten Commandments and the laws that God had given them to to regulate their their religion and their faith. Um, He made a living as a Pharisee off of interpreting the, the Bible, their Bible, the, uh, the Old Testament, and then teaching other people about it. And it actually went as far as Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, part of his job would be to punish and outcast the people that did not keep the law the correct way. He was a very powerful religious figure. And in his mind, a relationship with God would begin with sort of like an obscure view of holiness, where he thought that the more separate he could become from bad things and bad people, the more that God would love him and approve of him, and the more that he would be in God's good graces. He is then described as a ruler, somebody with authority, and the Bible will kind of hint at the fact that Nicodemus was in this thing called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of Jewish people that were appointed by Rome during Roman occupation to govern other Jewish people, because Jewish people didn't like to be governed by Rome itself. And so he was a political figure. He was famous. People would have known who Nicodemus was. He's not like Justin Bieber famous, but maybe like, but walking around the streets, people would have known who this man was. And finally, it says that he came to Jesus at night. That's interesting, because what it's saying is this man that people look to for his view of God and how to live a life to get God to approve you, 
um, he had something riding on this conversation with Jesus. And he didn't want a lot of the people that followed him to know that he was going to Jesus to have a conversation. So basically what John is telling us in those three little descriptions of Nicodemus is this. He is a guy that people would look to and would recognize and say, that guy knows how to have a relationship with God. That guy knows how to approach life and approach God. He was a man that supposedly knew who God was, how God thought, how God operated, what God wanted to be done and not not done. That was this man's framework. And Nicodemus, in this conversation, thinks that as he approaches Jesus to have a conversation about God, that it is his resume of good works and doing his best and keeping the law and shunning bad people and punishing bad people and kicking bad people out and making it harder and harder to approach God, he thought that that was the foundation and the key for his relationship with God. And he approaches Jesus with this mindset. His understanding, his foundation is to know God, I have to be able to do something for him. I have to be able to do something for him. And he approaches Jesus and he says something interesting. He says, Rabbi, which means teacher. He says, we know that you are from God because nobody can do what you are doing if God is not with them. Now, this is an interesting title that he gives Jesus. He says, teacher. It's interesting because other people would have called Nicodemus teacher. Rabbi was a term that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. And so what he's doing is he has this question about God, but he's insecure because people see him as the man that should know everything about God. But he sees in Jesus that there's something different about the relationship that Jesus has with God that he has with God. And so he says, Rabbi, teacher, what he's trying to do is level this playing field. And he's saying, Jesus, I'm a teacher. You're a teacher. Like, you can check my stats. Like, I've got people that are following me. Like, I I keep the Ten Commandments. I, like, kick out bad people from the temple. Like, I'm a teacher, too. I'm supposed to know what this God thing is all about. I've literally constructed and built my entire life off the fact that I know how to perform to get God's approval of me. And I actually go as far to teach others to do the exact same. But in this encounter with Jesus, we see humility in Nicodemus by calling him rabbi. Most scholars would actually say that Nicodemus was one of the first and earliest disciples of Jesus, even though he kind of kept it a little secret because he didn't want Jewish people to find out and kill him. For real. And so... He goes to Jesus and he calls him rabbi. And this is what he's saying in this moment. He's saying, Jesus, I'm supposed to be the guy that knows God. But it seems like you know God in a way that I just don't. Like I've built this foundation of my life of performing for God to get his approval. But there's something about you and the way you talk and the things that you do that is just different than I've ever experienced. And you know God in a way that I don't, and I want to know God like that. And Jesus says, hey, that's exactly right. I know God in a totally different way, because one, surprise, I am God. Two, (laughs) the foundation that you've built your entire life on 
That's not what God is about. And so Jesus, Nicodemus is like, Rabbi, like, how do you do all these God things? And Jesus responds to Nicodemus, but it's in a very peculiar way. It almost seems like Jesus is overlooking Nicodemus' statement. Nicodemus actually didn't even ask Jesus a question. He's just like, you seem like somebody that God's doing stuff through. And then Jesus responds in what seems to be a really weird way. He says this. He's like, yeah, no one can see the kingdom unless they're born again. And Nicodemus literally is like, what? <laughs> like, that's not, well, what do you mean? I asked, like, about God. And you're talking about being born again, like, out of your mom? Like, and it also just, like, it also made me think, like, how weird sometimes can we as Christians be when we're, like, trying to explain Jesus to people? It's like, what do I need to do to follow Jesus? Well, just be born again. Like, you just <laughs> get on in there and be born one more time. <laughs> Maybe too far. Okay. <laughs> but Nicodemus is, like, born again. Like, what are you talking about? He literally says, Jesus, what do you mean? It seems like Jesus is like disregarding this comment and sort of speaking to something totally different. But what is actually happening is Jesus is speaking to the heart of the issue that Nicodemus doesn't even have vocabulary to, to ask for. He's speaking to the heart of what Nicodemus is asking him about without even knowing how to ask for it. He says, Nicodemus, if you want to experience God the way that I know God, if you want to experience the Father the way that I know the Father, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And this is what Jesus is saying when he's, when he, this is what he means when he says that. You have to have a clean slate in the way that you think about God. You need to be born again. You need to have a fresh start. You need to leave that foundation that you've worked for and built your entire life. You need to leave that to the side because you, you don't understand what God is about. And if you try to pursue God with the mindset you already have, you're never going to get it. But if you can be born again, if you can have a fresh start, if you, can, if you can clear your mind and allow God to define himself to you instead of you trying to define who God is, then you will understand and experience God the way I experience God. The way that I would simply summarize being born again is this. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you have to realize that you are absolutely helpless when it comes to helping yourself. And your whole life has been built on what you can do and what you can bring to God. It's been built on helping yourself, making yourself better. But you don't even understand the first thing about it. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you need a fresh perspective. He's saying, you can't come to God. You can't know the Father the way that I do if you think it's going to be your resume that gets you there. If you think it's going to be your knowledge, if you think it's going to be your vocabulary and the way you can explain certain things, if you think it's going to be how many people you invite to church, if you think it's going to be how many bad things you don't do and how many good things you do do, then you're never going to understand what God is about. And I think as Jesus is saying this to Nicodemus, he's also saying this to us in here as young adults. If you're in here and you're curious about Jesus, maybe he's never crossed your radar, but you came to party at the park and somebody invited you and you're like, honestly, I didn't even really care about Jesus before I walked in here. But I don't know, if you want to know what Jesus is and what he is about, I'll tell you first what he's not about. He's not about you trying to impress him. And that is what Nicodemus built his whole life around. The foundation of his encounter with God was him working so hard to impress God with what he can do and what he didn't do.
But Jesus is saying to him in this moment, if you want to understand God at all, if you even want to begin to understand what the kingdom of God is about, if you even want to begin to understand what I am about, if you want to begin to understand what the Father is about, what he's like, what he thinks, what, how he acts, what, how he is towards you, you have to understand this. This must be your most foundational and fundamental understanding of God and how he sees you. And then we get to the most popular verse in the Bible, and is this. This must be your most foundational understanding that God loves you. That God loves you regardless of you, in spite of you. God loves you. He loves you. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. The world, yes, God loves the global world, like global warming, don't litter, like whatever. Like, but the world in that moment, he's saying God loves Connor. God loves Zach. God loves Keaton. God loves you. God loves you so much. And I think in that moment for Nicodemus to hear those words leave Jesus' mouth was a shocking experience to him. It would have flipped his theology on its head. His whole life is spent working for God and trying to earn God's grace and approval. And, and Nicodemus would have thought that John 3, 16 would have said something like this. For God so tolerated the world that he gave his son to just deal with the problem. Or maybe that God was just so fed up with how bad people were being. Or that God was so frustrated with the world that he gave his son. That is what Nicodemus would have expected Jesus to say when he's talking about how he has this relationship with God. But he says something totally different. And here's what I think, because I'm guilty of this too. How often do I approach God in a Thursday and a Sunday and reading my Bible in my own private prayer time with this idea of God is frustrated with me. For God is so frustrated with Connor that he gave Jesus just to deal with him. For God was so fed up or for God tolerated Connor for so long that he finally just gave Jesus to deal with it. And what happens is when we approach God with that mindset, this kind of becomes what happens. We say, I need to go and pray because God's probably frustrated with me, right? I need to go to church. Or I need to read my Bible because I haven't been in a while or I haven't read in a few days. And I got to get back into the good graces of God. God probably, he probably doesn't care about me. He's honestly probably annoyed with me right now because I messed up a few times a few months back and I've got this pattern I can't seem to get rid of. Like, that is my foundational thought towards God. But Jesus is saying, no, listen, seriously, if you want to even begin to catch the smallest glimpse, I'm not even talking about understand the fullness of God. I'm talking about if you want like the smallest glimpse of revelation on who Jesus is, you have to make this the most basic foundation of your thoughts and the way you interact with God. And it is this, God so loves you. He so loves you. God just doesn't love you. God so loves you. Have you ever like so loved something? My wife so loved Theo. I remember when I was getting married and uh, dating Aaron and being engaged to Aaron. I loved Aaron. But when I was standing at the altar and I saw her walking down in her dress, it was a different love I'd never experienced before. I so loved my wife. 
Listen, God so loves you. He doesn't just love you. God so loves you. See, listen, nothing in the Bible is accidental. Jesus could have said anything. Jesus could have said, God loves you. Jesus could have said, God likes you. He could have said, God thinks you're okay, like whatever. But he said, God so loves you. And I couldn't get that word so out of my mind all week. Like, why so love? What is so love? Like, I get what it is to love, but what is so love? Because God so loves you. That is his primary number one thought towards you, even if you don't like him. I'll go as far as to say, even if you hate God and you hate Jesus and something happened in your life that you blame on him, guess what? Doesn't matter. God so loves you. He so loves. He can't help himself. The Bible says he knows every hair on your head. He knows every breath you're ever going to have. God is obsessed with you. He so loves you. And a lot of us in here tonight, we might struggle with that concept of love because over the past, I don't know, years or whatever in our life, maybe life experience, maybe we've allowed culture to define what love is. And most of the time, an incorrect definition of love, but what is primarily portrayed in our culture is that love is like transactional. Love is something to where if you make me feel a certain way or if you do a certain enough things for me, I will then love you and vice versa. But luckily, the Bible says that God is love, and God just doesn't leave that to be vague. And also, love is not God, but God is love. And so God defines his love for us. God's just not like, God is love. I'll leave you to figure out what that means, because that can like cause a ton of damage. But he goes, no, I'm love, and I will define my love for you. First, first wow, got a list there. Okay. <laughs> first Corinthians, there we go. 13, starting in verse 4, it says this. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It's long-suffering. Love, it doesn't seek its own interest. Love is not angry. It keeps no record of wrong. So if God is love and God so loves you, that must mean that God is not just patient with you. God is so patient with you. God is not just kind to you. God is so kind to you. Jesus, he's not just forgiving. He is so forgiving towards you. And I love that in this verse, it says love is not self-centered. It's not self-seeking. God is so secure. God's love is so secure. He is so secure in who he is and what his love can do for somebody. Band, you guys can make your way on up. Maybe you're in here tonight, and one of the deepest wounds you've ever experienced in your entire life has come from somebody that supposedly loved you. Maybe you're in here tonight, and one of the deepest things, one of the hardest things you've ever had to wrestle with or try to get over or try to take to God was done to you by somebody that supposedly loves you. Maybe you were sexually abused. Maybe you were physically abused. And it was by a loved one, a parent, a grandparent, a friend, a brother or sister. I don't know. And maybe when I say God loves you so much, immediately a defense goes up and you feel like you can't trust it. You feel like, listen, I know what love has done. I know what it feels like to be hurt by somebody that supposedly loves me. 
I know what love has done. And an offense goes up and, and you, you put up a barrier and you guard yourself. Or maybe something was done to you and you feel like you're disqualified from love because you're too broken or you're too hurt and you don't understand how anybody could love you. Can I tell you something? That love only wounds out of insecurity. Love only will wound out of insecurity. But when you are so loved, not just loved, but so loved by God. And when 1 Corinthians 13 says that God is patient, kind, but he is secure. He's not self-seeking, but he is secure. Then you can know that his love towards you is not manipulative. God's love towards you is not manipulative. It's not given out of insecurity. Love is untrustworthy when it's given out of insecurity to gain validation of yourself. People that hurt other people with love are people that feel insecure and give love to gain validation back. But God is so secure in who he is. And when God is so patient and so kind and so forgiving and his love is so secure, look what can happen with a love like this. John 3, 16, for God so loved you and me that he gave. A love that comes from a place of security can give without any expectation of return. A love that is birthed out of a place of security. If God is secure in who he is, and let me tell you, he is. And if his love is secure towards you, then he can give that love in confidence because it comes from a secure place. What does God give? John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, you and me, that he gave freely his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but they will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn you, to beat you up, to remind you of your mistakes. But God came to save you through Jesus. And the foundation of that is his love. God so loves you. He so loves me that nothing can separate it. He's so kind to you. I feel like somebody in here tonight has come and they just feel like they're beaten up and they feel like they're misunderstood and they feel like, I don't know, that God is, is frustrated and punishing them. Can I just remind you that God is not just kind towards you. He's so kind to you. Some of you, you're in here and you walked in and maybe last night you, me you messed up. You gave into an addiction, alcohol, pornography, whatever. Maybe you did that on your way in or maybe you have plans to go out and do that right after. Can I just tell you that like, and you feel like I'm just treading on thin ice here. Like I'm just one mistake away or maybe that was the one mistake that sent God over the edge for me. God is so patient with you. He's so patient with you. His love is so much stronger than you could ever fathom or imagine. Jesus is so loving to you and to me. Can we all stand tonight? Some of you, I feel like you come into YA. I only say that because this was me a couple years ago. You come into YA every single Thursday night and you come in with a mindset of Nicodemus. You come in and you approach Jesus. You know that Jesus is where you need to be. You know you want to be around Jesus. 
And maybe you, you walk into this room and you raise your hands in worship and you say hi to your friends, but in your heart, you feel this sort of wrestling in your soul of kind of like, did my goods outweigh my bads this week? Like, am I going to be able to worship God feeling good or am I going to be, am I going to have to like repent and feel terrible about myself and think that God hates me all night? Can I tell you from the bottom of my heart, stop it. Just stop doing that. Because if you don't understand that, not even when you walk in this room, when you open your eyes and you take a breath, the foundation of your relationship with God and the foundational thought that God has towards you is that He so loves you. You can't ever earn it. You can't ever deserve it. You can't ever be good enough can never be bad enough. God so loves you. And maybe you're in here tonight and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. And maybe, honestly, you don't even care about Jesus. And maybe whenever you think about church or you think about religion, your thought is, what do I need to do? I, I know if I come into this place, they're just going to tell me I need to live a certain way to be a better person, to get God's stamp of approval. Or maybe you're like, man, I know they're going to pass some buckets around and ask me for money. I think they're going to ask that I give a certain amount, and then maybe that'll get God's affection stirred up towards me. Maybe that's the message that they preach. It's not true. Listen, my prayer is that if you don't know Jesus, you walk out of this room knowing that. But even if you don't, Jesus so loves you. He loves you. He's, he's literally crazy about you. Jesus cares about you. He loves you so much. 1 John 4 says this, and you're like, how, did, how can you say that? It says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us and gave Jesus for us to be our salvation. Honestly, I was thinking of the best way to end this message. Um, I know sometimes when you close your eyes, raise your hands, I just think God wants to do something different in that tonight. Being loved, which this is weird, accepting love is one of the hardest things for some reason the human heart can do, especially when it's accepting the, the no-strings-attached love of the Father through Jesus. And so here's what I want to do. I want to open up this front here. And during worship, you don't have to come down if you don't want to. I don't want you to fake anything. If it's in your seat, maybe you go to the back, maybe you go to the sides, maybe you come down to the front. I want you to evaluate your soul and ask Jesus, have I been approaching you the way that Nicodemus might approach you? God, is the foundation of my relationship with you, is the foundation of my understanding of who Jesus is, is it really love or is it something different? Because here's what I promise, I just feel the Father's heart in this so much. God is gonna blow you away. He's gonna speak to your heart and speak to your soul the only way that he knows how. And he is gonna remind you of how much he loves you. And if you failed and you messed up this week, he's gonna remind you how patient he is with you. And if you feel like he's beating you up or the world's beating you up, he's gonna remind you how kind he is to you. I just believe that as we go into this song and we create this moment to just be alone and be present with God, God is gonna show you how much he desperately and passionately loves you. Listen, young adults, Jesus so, so loves you. Can we pray? And then we're going to worship. We're just going to open up our hearts to God and see what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Father.
Father God, we love you. God, thank you so much for your love. We are aware, God, that there's nothing we can do. We can't approach you with good works and earn a single thing. We can't shame enough evil. We can't do enough good. God, you love us. It's just who you are. You can't help yourself. And so tonight, I pray that if somebody in this room doesn't know you, that they would begin to have a conversation with you for the very first time, and they would experience the love that only you can give. Or maybe somebody came in here tonight beaten up, broken, bruised. Would you remind them that the foundation of their relationship and walk with you is this? You're loved. You're loved. That's it. You're loved. Can't change it. You're loved. Jesus, it's our honor to worship you. Thank you for loving us unconditionally. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.